Well, good morning and welcome again to Grace Bible Church. Uh, it's always wonderful to be with the saints. I, I just wanted to say thank you. Thank you for your gift to my family. Um, as I said earlier, the pleasure is all ours. We have so much enjoyed serving the Lord by serving you and are thankful that we could be here. We can be here. We're thankful for these past uh, now almost four years. Uh, we've started this, this work in January of 2017. 2017, and uh, we came here, Angie and I came here with the family in late 2016, and uh, we've been here just loving to be with you guys, and so we're so, so thankful to be, to be here. also want to give a plug for, the, for the, the retreat, the winter retreat that we're doing in January. Uh, I've, I told you guys earlier this year, uh, Ray and Missy Merringer are coming. Uh, we're planned, we were planning to have them come in the spring, and now they're coming now in January. Uh, you will, this will be a treat to have uh, them here, and I just hope that you'll plan to be with the church as we go on this retreat. Just pray for the preparation and pray as we, as we approach that time. Well, today we're continuing our study in Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, verses 1 through 5. I, I sent a message out yesterday on band uh, letting you know that today's sermon will be on a sensitive topic, the topic of sexual immorality. It's an incredibly important topic in the life of our church and our families, and I hope you will seriously consider all that the Bible teaches regarding this subject. I hope and pray that this sermon will be as sobering for you as it is for me. It's interesting to me that Paul would focus on the subject, uh, on this particular subject, as a part of the discussion, his discussion on church unity. We must recognize that sexual sin will always, let me underscore that, always bring chaos. It brings chaos to our families. It brings chaos to our churches and ultimately, has, as we have seen, bring, brings chaos to our culture. And Matthew Henry says this, The way to preserve the peace of the church is to preserve its purity. And I will tell you that the more we walk in purity as a church, the more peace that we'll have as a church. The more you walk in purity as an individual, the more peace there will be in your families. So today we're going, to look, we're going to begin by looking at what the Bible says about sexual immorality. In today's sermon, we're going to define sexual immorality according to the Bible, and we will also look at why it always brings chaos. In other words, what is it and why is it bad? So let me pray, and then I'll read Ephesians 5, chapter, or chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning. Father, we pray for this sermon. Pray that it would do its work in our heart. Lord, that you, we know, and we trust the promise that your word will not return void. We thank you for this time. We pray for our communion coming up in just a few minutes as um, we prepare our hearts for that time of proclaiming the Lord's death. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let me read Ephesians 5, verses 1 through 5. It says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. But immorality and or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you, as is proper among the saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of God, or kingdom of Christ, that is, and God. 
Now, it goes without saying that we have a huge problem with sexual deviancy in our culture. Let me give you a few numbers which will help you understand the nature of this problem. I pulled these, this da- data from a document called Porn Stats by an organization called Covenant Eyes. So you can go find, you can Google this information and find this information as well. Before I give you these numbers, let me warn you that this will be shocking to any sensible person. In 2006, the sex-related entertainment business estimated revenues were just under $13 billion in the United States. These estimates included video sales and rentals, internet sales, cable, pay-per-view, phone hotlines, exotic dance clubs, magazines, and novelty stores. In 2007, global estimates were 20 billion revenue and with 10 billion in the United States. The Free Speech Coalition estimated both global and US porn revenues have been reduced by 50% between 2007 and 2011. Unfortunately, that would seem like good news, but unfortunately, this is due to the amount of free pornography available online. According to a survey of data published in the Journal of Internet Law in 2005, pornography accounted for 69% of the total pay-per-view Internet content market. This outpaced news, sports, and video games, if you can imagine that. Damon Brown said this. He says, if we invent a machine, the first thing we're going to do after making profit is to use it to watch porn. When the projector was invented roughly a century ago, the first movies were not damsels in distress tied to train tracks or Charlie Chaplin-style slapsticks. They were stilted shorts called stag films. VHS became the dominant standard for VCRs largely because Sony wouldn't allow pornographers to use Betamax. The movie industry followed that lead. You name it. DVDs, internet, cell phones. Pornography has planted its big flag there first, or at least shortly thereafter, end quote. Listen to these numbers. 28,258 users were, are watching pornography every second. $3,075 is spent every second on the Internet. 40 million Americans regularly visit porn sites. 35% of all Internet downloads are related to pornography. According to the most popular website of this sort, 28.5 billion annual visits to the website. 81 million daily average visits, 25 billion searches performed, 50,000 searches per minute, 800 searches per second, 4,052,542 videos uploaded, 68 years worth of content uploaded, 3,732 pentabytes of information transferred, enough to fill the memory of every iPhone on earth. According to a survey conducted by the Barna Group in the U.S. in 2014 and 2016, the following percentages of men say they have viewed pornography at least once a month. Among 18 to 30-year-olds, 79%. Among 31 to 49-year-olds, 67%. Among 50 to 68-year-olds, 49%. Women are slightly better. 63%, 38%, 25%. Sadly, this is not just a problem with adults. In 2012, True Research conducted 2017 online interviews with teens, ages 13 to 17, and parents of teens. 71% of teens have done something to hide what they do online from their parents. This includes clearing browsing history. Minimizing a browser when in view, deleting inappropriate videos, lying about behavior online, using a phone instead of a computer, blocking parents with social media privacy settings, using private browsing, disabling parental controls, 
having email or social media accounts unknown to parents. 32% admit to intentionally accessing nude or pornographic content, content online. Of these, 43% do so on a weekly basis. Only 12% of parents knew their teens were accessing this, this material. In 2016, among teens 13 to 17, 7% came across pornography daily. 8% intentionally sought it out daily. 21% came across it weekly. 18% sought it out weekly. I could go on and on. There's just, it's just incredible. It's incredible. Listen to this. In a study in the, of the University of Alberta, 429 students, 13 to 14, from 17 schools, it says 90% of boys, 70% of girls reported accessing sexually explicit media on at least one occasion. 35% said they'd viewed it too many times to account. To count. 93% of boys, 62% were exposed before 18. Again, I could go on and on. Listen to this. 83% of boys, 57% of girls have seen group activity in this way online. 69% of boys, 55% of girls have seen same-sex activity. 39% of boys, 23% of girls have seen bondage. I, I, I shudder. I'll stop. As I read these stats, I hope that you recognize that this problem is not just a problem for the unbelieving. It's a huge issue for the church. I shudder to think how widespread sexual immorality is in the church. The fact, this fact is underscored by the number of pastors, the number of pastors who have fallen into sexual sin on a nearly weekly basis. We hear of another pastor who has fallen. When I was in seminary, there was a man who came. This is the master's seminary. A man who came and preached at chapel several times. He, he even taught at Shepherd's Conference. He was a wonderful preacher. But a couple of years ago, he admitted to having an illicit affair. These stories are too, far too numerous to repeat. But it's clear, it's clear, beloved, that we have a problem a major problem in our culture, but we also have a major problem in the church. It's a problem we cannot ignore. It's a problem which Christians must take seriously. It's a problem which we here at Grace Bible Church must take seriously. As you know, we are returning to our study in Ephesians. Paul wrote this letter to the church at Ephesus to encourage the believers and to remind them of their immeasurable blessings in Christ Jesus. He reminded them that they have been chosen by the Father before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before Him. They were redeemed through the blood of the cross and sealed by the Holy Spirit. Paul wanted the church to be encouraged and to be thankful for those incalculable blessings in Christ. He wanted them to be encouraged by all that Christ had accomplished among them. He wanted them to recognize the blessings of being part of the body of Christ. And as such, he encouraged them to live in a manner worthy of those immense blessings. In the final three chapters, the final three chapters of this letter are structured around five walk commands. We've studied previously the first two. The first is to call, the call to walk worthy of the calling of Christ. This is the overarching command of the Christian. This is a call to humility and gentleness and love as, as, as we work to preserve the unity we have in the Spirit. It's also the call to use the gifts of the Spirit for the building up of the body of Christ. As such, as such, we are must not, we're called not to walk like the Gentiles walk, in the futility of the mind. But we are to walk in the renewal of our minds. We are to recognize that we've been made into a new creation which has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. This is crucial for us to understand. 
You see, Christianity is not just a bunch of rules to follow. We have been made into a new creation by the Lord. We have been given a new king, and we are to live to please him. Therefore, we are to live according to his law, the law of Christ, which is the law of love. And in in this new life, in this new life that we are given, we are to walk by faith and not by sight. We have as our ambition then to be pleasing to him and him alone. Jesus himself said in Matthew 11, My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now I gave you this this, uh, quote last week from Jerry Bridges, but I think it's, it's a good quote to repeat. You see, we obey God's law not to be loved. But because we are loved in Christ, and I will add, because it brings Him glory, and it gives us ultimate joy. Now last week we began to look at Ephesians 5, 1-5, where we find this, this, this third of five walk commands. The, this first command is that you are to mirror God by walking in love. Paul reminded the church at Ephesus that they are beloved children of God, that therefore they should walk according to this truth. You see, we as Christians have been loved by God, and in His mercy He has saved us. So God calls us to walk in love for Him and for our neighbor. And in doing so, we are imitating the Lord who made us. And we're also, we're also walking with Him according to His original intent before. His original intent for us. Our Lord Jesus has modeled this. He modeled this through His life and His his life, His death on the cross and His resurrection. Therefore, according to Paul, we are to meditate on Christ, who is our example. That's verse 2. Christ loved us and He died for us. His sacrifice on the cross was the ultimate sacrifice of love. Look at your text in chapter 5, verse 2. It says, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. You see, we are to to live sacrificially, giving our lives to Christ and to our neighbor because he sacrificially gave his life as a sacrifice for our sins, to restore us. Now, I can't emphasize enough that we are to live in righteousness and holiness of the truth, because it is pleasing to the Lord. It is pleasing to Him, and it glorifies Him. And it also brings, as I said earlier, great joy to us when we do so. Just yesterday, some of you may have seen this video. I watched a a video of the officer-involved shooting in Philadelphia. I was struck by the burden struck by the burden which, was, which is being carried by that community surrounding the man who was shot. You, know, you watch these videos, and it's just heart-wrenching. It's heart-wrenching, obviously, with the, the shooting. The, the shooting was tragic, no matter how you look at the situation. But it's heart-rending when we see the, these women crying and, and screaming and these children crying out around this, these situations, the chaos that's in these situations. It's even more tragic when we see people living according to their own rules. And this is happening before our eyes as our nation has abandoned God. And Judges 21-25 tells us that everyone in Israel did what was right in his own eyes. Friends, the result in Israel was disastrous. If you read Judges, you see the, the result but it's no less disastrous in our own culture. You see, Israel didn't follow God's law and paid the price. Church, let me say it this way. The burden of living life apart from God is too much to bear. And we'll continue to see this great pain unless the people repent and turn to Christ. As Christians, though, we are called to live according to the law of Christ, which brings peace. This brings us to verses 3 through 5. In this this passage, in these verses, Paul gives two marks of the idolater who will have no part in the kingdom of Christ and of God. That's that's chapter 5, verse 5. But those who are immoral in their conduct... Those who are immoral in their conduct. Now let me continue to reiterate. 
as we get into this. That Paul calls believers to act according to their new status as a new creation in Christ. At salvation, we have put off the old man and we have put on the new. Therefore, we are called as Christians, as a new creation in Christ, we are called, we are called to walk according to that truth. Therefore, we're called to walk in love. And there's nothing more unloving, there's nothing more unloving than to live in a moral life that is antithetical to the truth of God. Look at your text, verse 3. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Beloved, these things, sexual immorality, impurity, and greediness are not even to be named among us. As Christians, as the church, we must flee these things. When Paul says that these things shouldn't be named among us, he doesn't mean we can't talk about them like we are today. He would be violating his own command by writing about it, right? He means that they shouldn't even exist among us. Harold Honer, the commentator on Ephesians, says this, Paul is asserting that these sins should be so universally absent from the body of believers that there should be no occasion to associate them with the church. End quote. Did you get that? The sins that we see in our culture, the sins that we see in our world, should, should be so universally absent among God's people, among believers, that there shouldn't be any way to associate them with the church. Unfortunately, that's not what we see, is it? Unfortunately, that's not what we see. The last part of verse 3 has been translated by the NASB and ESV as, as is proper among the saints. This is the literal translation, but the sense of it is that, that for these things are not these things, that it is not proper for these things to be uh, among the saints. Uh, the, the Net Bible, the New English Translation says this, captures this idea with its translation. It says, as these are not fitting for the saints. Beloved, the idea is that as Christians, these sins are not fitting for us. They shouldn't even be named among us. Now, first Paul says that we are not to be sexually immoral. This is the Greek word pernea, which is where we get our English word porn. This word has the idea of all unlawful sexual intercourse or fornication. Said differently, this refers to that which does not match God's very good design for sex. I think it's worth our time. I think we should walk through, take, take, take our time to walk through God's word and see what it says about sexual immorality, and I want to start from the beginning. Let me just say as we dive into this that we will just look at this first word, pernea, today and finish the rest of the passage this week. So just relax. Today we're going to just dive into this idea of sexual immorality. Turn to Genesis chapter 1. I think it's very important. I think it's incredibly important for us as believers to have a, a reason why and, uh, and to understand and be able to define why we have the sexual ethic that we have. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Stop right there. Now, there's a, a lot packed into that statement, but for our purposes, it means that God has created this world and that we, as, as people, as mankind, we are accountable to Him. Now, let me say, let me say, this is true whether you agree with that statement or not. It's true. If God is sovereign... Whether you believe Him to be sovereign or not does not matter. 
I mean, it ultimately matters because it matters to your salvation. But what I'm saying is, is that your lack of belief in that statement does not change the truth of it. In Psalm 24, 1, David exclaims, The earth is the Lord's, and all it contains, the world and, and those who dwell in it. Now get that. The earth is the Lord's, and everything that it contains, the world and all of us, we are under His sovereign direction, under His control. And it's true whether you believe it or you don't. Now I want you to see something that is clear from the beginning of God's creation. He has founded this world according to His holy character. Now let me stop and say that as Christians, we must believe I believe that we must believe God's account of the creation of the world. If we don't, we're open to all sorts of interpretations of the world we inhabit. And I'm telling you that that's what we're seeing even in the church. As people have given over Genesis chapters 1 through 11, what's happened is, is that that attack has come through that, through that direction from the enemy. Now, I would argue that our understanding of God and His character hinges on our grasp of creation. You see, God is holy, and He spoke the world into existence, ex nihilo. He brought it forth out of nothing by the word of His power. And as such, His creation acts accordingly. Now get that. His creation acts accordingly. It acts according to the fact that He created it by His Word, according to His holy character. Let me show you what I mean by that. Look at verse 11. And God said, Let, there be, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees on the earth, bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, Plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind, and God saw that it was good. Now, the first thing we see here is order. God created the universe with an order that can be observed. You can see this order in patterns throughout the creation. We've talked about it before. <coughs> There's a, the, the thing called the Fibonacci sequence, which is seen in flowers and trees and even in the breeding of rabbits. There's also the golden ratio, which has great influence on our sense of beauty. We see this ratio throughout, throughout nature. The beauty of the human face or the beauty of an architectural design many times are based on our sense of this ratio. Church, these are the fingerprints of God on His creation. Therefore, this little phrase, after their kind, is incredibly important for us to, to recognize and understand. A plain reading of the text implies that plants and animals were created to reproduce within the boundaries of their kind. We can clearly see this concept in our world today. As you know, dogs and cats, or horses and cows, don't breed, right? They don't cross those kinds. It doesn't happen. A good, a good rule of, of thumb to understand what a kind is, is if two things can breed together, then they are the same created kind. That's what the Bible is talking about. As an example, dogs can easily breed with one another, whether wolves or dingoes or coyotes or domestic dogs. When, the, when dogs breed together, you get dogs. You don't get cats. You don't get birds, you don't get fish, you get dogs. Works the same with giraffes, with elephants, it's the same with plants and trees. In other word, words, each plant and tree on the earth is divided according to its kind. An apple tree does not turn into a pear tree. A strawberry plant will not yield potatoes. I love potatoes, and I also love strawberries. And neither are very good for me, I don't think. An olive tree will not produce 
almonds. That's pretty basic, right? Now, I'm not saying that, that scientists haven't been able to genetically modify things, but I am saying that even those modifications cannot break the rules that God set forth regarding His creation. In other words, when it comes to these things, even the brightest scientist is no more than a child pushing sand in a sandbox. Let me put it this way. We may learn how to use the sand for concrete, but at the end of the day, it's still sand. At the end of the day, it's still just little bitty rocks that have been ground up into tiny, tiny particles. It, that we can't change that structure. It doesn't happen. Look at verse 20. Then God said, Let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. Verse 21, God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarmed after their kind and every winged bird after its kind. And God saw that it was good. Again, we see the same principle. The fish and the birds will reproduce according to their kind. Fish do not become birds and birds do not become fish. A fish is a fish and a bird is a bird. It always been that way and it always will be in God's creation. Look at verse 22. God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. Here we see God's intention for His creation and His intention for reproduction. He desired for the birds of the sky and for the fish of the sea to be fruitful and fill the earth and fill the seas. And He filled the earth with vegetation. Now He's filling the seas with fish and the skies with birds. Look at verse 24. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things, and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so. God made the beast of the earth after their kind, and the cattle after their kind, and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. And God said that it was good. Again, we see this same principle at, at work. Everything according to its kind. There's order in God's created universe. You might be saying, what does this have to do with sexual immorality? Well, just be patient with me and look at verse 27. Verse 27, God created man in his own image, and in the image of God he created him. Male and female, he created them. See, here we see God's perfect design for mankind. Man was created in God's image and... God created them male and female. Very clear. Male and female. About a year ago, the BBC came out with a program which taught young children that there are 100 genders or more. Beloved, according to the Word of God, which is our authoritative, the authoritative, God's authoritative Word, there are two genders, male and female. No more, no less. We are binary. God designed it this way. It is part of God's good, very good creation. Now, we must recognize that in a fallen world, things are not as God originally intended. In a fallen world, in a fallen world, we should expect anomalies and irregularities. But these do not they don't disprove the existence of the perfect. Irregularities and anomalies do not disprove the existence of the perfect. Let me tell you what they should do. They should ser serve to stir up our desire for the perfect. When we see the pain caused by the fallen fallenness of this creation... This should make us long for the perfect to come. This is the gist of Paul's argument in Romans 8, 18. He says this, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. 8, 19, he says this, For the ancient anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Our creation, this creation, God's creation, this God's creation is longing 
for redemption. Look at verse 28, Genesis 1:28. God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. <clears throat> Again, here we see the command to be fruitful and multiply. The male and the female coming together to bring forth offspring, the seed. So God intended the man and the woman to reproduce, to fill the earth, and to subdue it. He intended mankind to rule over His creation. Now look at verse 31, and I I will say this is absolutely crucial. Verse 31, God saw saw all that he made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. This is crucial, because all these things, including the reproductive process, was considered very good by God. It was part of his perfect creation. Now let me make a few preliminary observations here. God created the world by the word of His power. He created the world as very good. This perfect world reflects His holiness and His character. And as such, there is perfect order. Said another way, He brought order to chaos. And anything that deviates from His design brings chaos. (coughs) We say that again. Anything that deviates from his design brings chaos, not peace. Second observation. In God's perfect creation, there are kinds. Inherent to this perfect creation, it is not proper for different kinds to come together for the purpose of breeding. Cats don't breed dogs. Horses don't cows. Men and women don't breed with animals of any kind. It's improper. It's against his stated order. Third observation. In God's perfect creation, reproduction is good and is for the purpose of filling the earth. Now, I don't want to give the impression here that God has not given sex for enjoyment. But that sex between male and female is the only way we are to produce. Reproduction, then, is the main purpose of that function. Another observation. In God's perfect creation, there are only two genders. Male and female. Anything other than this is a deviation from God's perfect design. It's deviated and brings pain. Now look at Genesis 2. I would argue that this chapter, Genesis 2, is a deeper dive into God's creation of the man. Therefore, chapter 2 describes God's very good design for mankind. Look at verse 7. So chapter 2, verse 7. It says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, where he placed, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. So we see here how God created man. He created him, and he placed him in Eden. Now look at verse 15. Then the Lord... God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. Then the Lord commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Now I'm going to stop right there and just say that there's a lot there, obviously. This is the command, this is God's word, command not to eat from this tree. 
Ultimately, we know that God, or that the man disobeyed God, rebelled against God. But look at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. So initially, God created the man without the woman. But God knew that it was not good to be alone. Now, that's interesting, because, because man and woman, male and female, or bring perfection to the to complete, that is, is probably a better way to put it, complete God's good creation. It is not good. But in, verse, in chapter 1, verse 31, when he finished creation, he said it was very good. So man and woman, male and female, is part of God's good creation. Now literally, literally he made, he, well, he's promised to make, he promised to make Adam a suitable helper, the man. Literally, this was the one, one who corresponded to him. Quite literally, if you, if you translate the Hebrew. She was the same, but different. You understand? She's the same, but different. So here, here's something that's telling. Look at verse 19. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky, and he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So what happened is, is God brought all the animals to the man to name them. This showed man's dominion over the animals because he actually gave them names, but it also showed the man that there was none like him. There was none corresponding to him. There was not a helper suitable for him from among the animals. So, look at verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the place, the closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man, and he brought her to the man. Now, for those among us who love weddings, this is the model of the father presenting the bride to the groom. This is the big reveal. This is, this is the, 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 where, where the, the father comes out and, we, and the groom sees the, the bride for the first time. And in this situation, Adam was brought to even poetry. And he says this, The man said, This is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. You shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, now let's look at verse 24. And by the way, I know this is scripture, but it might not be the best poem if you get married. Could be, I guess. But look at verse 24. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now again, I would argue this is the first marriage between man and woman. I would also argue that marriage then, according to this scripture, is a one flesh relationship. This argument is later reinforced by Paul in Ephesians 5 when he uses marriage to describe the relationship between Christ and the church. Now, let me, get, let me make a few more observations regarding this. It is not good for man to be alone. Therefore, God created the woman for the man. He created the woman to be one corresponding to him. God instituted marriage as a one-flesh relationship between a man and a woman. There is nothing shameful about the sexual relationship of the man and the woman within the one-flesh context of marriage. And this was all part of God's very good design. Any sexual relationship which deviates from God's original design is sexual immorality, and that's what I wanted to get to. I could have said that, right? I could have just flat out said it. 
but I wanted to walk through and I wanted to show you from Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, I wanted to show you creation, and I wanted to show you the order from creation, and I wanted to show you that anything that deviates from God's original design ultimately is sexual immorality. Chapter 3, the man and the woman disobeyed God and fell into sin. It's telling that God cursed both the bringing forth of the seed, uh, the offspring, childbirth, and he brought difficulty upon the relationship of the man and woman. Now, after the fall, we see sexual deviancy abound, starting with the sons and daughters of Cain. In 4.19, in Genesis 4.19, we see Lamech has taken multiple wives, which is in direct violation of God's perfect design for marriage. Some people say, well, wait a minute. Isn't multiple, multiple marriages, isn't that in the Bible? You know, men taking multiple wives? Yes, but it doesn't mean God condones it. It's outside of God's design for marriage of one man and one woman. Genesis 6, 2, it says that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives from themselves, whomever they chose. Now, it's hard to be sure exactly what's happening here. Some believe that this may have been fallen angels procreating with women. But in any, in any case, it was a deviance, deviancy. It, was, it deviated from God's perfect design. Genesis 19, the men of Sodom tried to lie with two angels who came to, to Lot's house. We could go on and on, church. We could go on and on right down to the New Testament, even to our own times. And we'll continue to look at this next week as we look, continue to look at these verses. But I want to take some time to personally appeal to you in a couple of different ways. Paul says that sexual immorality is not must not even be named among us. This means that we need to understand what the Bible says about sex. We must recognize that sex is good when enjoyed according to God's design, according to God's perfect design. This also means that we must not be practicing anything that deviates from God's design. This includes partaking in pornography, which celebrates sexual, sexual deviation, sexual immorality. If you are, let me just personally say this, and we'll see more next week. If you're personally caught in a pattern of sexual sin, Please seek out a mature believer in Christ. We need to lovingly battle this sin together. In the meantime, listen to the words of Augustine. He says this, There is no remedy so powerful against the heat of sexual desire or temptation as the remembrance of our Savior's passion. In all my difficulties, I never found anything so effective, efficacious, effective as the wounds of Christ. In them I sleep secure, from them I derive new life, end quote. In just a few moments, we're going to observe the Lord's table. And I beg you to consider your sin, especially your sexual sin, in light of the Lord's death. Even now, as we prepare, as we move toward the Lord's table, I just ask that you prepare your heart by confessing but let me appeal to you in another way before we do before we observe the Lord's table. Beloved, please don't fall for the lie <clears throat> that it is unloving to call sin those things which fall outside of God's design. Let me say that again. Don't fall for the lie that it is unloving to call sin those things which fall outside of God's design. Church, we must never be hateful. That would violate walking in love. But we must hold to the truth in love. We must hold to the truth in love. And the truth is that anything that deviates from God's perfect design for human sexuality is immorality, and it is sinful. 
Now, this includes pornography, viewing pornography, adultery, fornication, homosexuality, transsexuality, bisexuality, bestiality. Beloved, anything that deviates from God's perfect design for sex is sexual immorality and it is sinful and it must not be named among us. And it is not unloving. It is not unloving to say that it is sin. Again, we're not called to be hateful. We're called to be loving. And speaking the truth is loving. Let me appeal to you this way. Christ died for these sins. Our Lord went to the cross to pay for these sins. How can we condone them? How can we condone them? Especially in our midst. Let me pray, and then we're going to transition to a time of observing the Lord's table. Our Heavenly Father, we humbly come before you. Very difficult passage, Lord, in many ways. Yet your truth, the truth of your word is very clear. You call us to walk according to walk in love according to the truth. And your world, your creation was created in accordance to your character, your holy character. It was created to be very good. Lord, we have rebelled against you. We are sinners in need of a Savior. Father, we thank you for sending the Lord Jesus to die on a cross, to redeem this world. Thank you for saving us. In Christ's name, amen. As we approach the Lord's table,